By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. In the US, we have average laws and exceptional enforcement, said a Department of Justice prosecutor I met at a conference back in 2019. That quote has always stuck with me and is reflected in the comparative number of enforcement actions and specifically fines that come out of the US. What's going on with those today and what can we learn from them as KYC and anti-financial crime professionals? To guide us through the fines of 2022, I'm joined by Jill DeWitt, who following a career at JP Morgan Chase has joined Moody's KYC unit to lead our industry practice on financial crime due diligence in the Americas. Hi, Jill. Thank you for joining us again. How are you? Pretty well. Thanks, Alex. I'm really pleased we're having this conversation, actually, as you're so much closer to the US enforcement actions than certainly me, and you're really the one leading Moody's on this. Now, I know we've been talking about the enforcement actions of 2022 uh, the last few weeks, and you've done a great job in tracking them, pulling out the key points, etc., I believe you've actually got four that you've profiled in some depth, and they range from hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines to hundreds of millions of dollars. And you thought these would be the most interesting ones to focus on today. Is that right? Yeah. The main reason why I picked these forms is really the headlines around them. It had nothing to do with, you know, I was interested in them. These were the ones that I was seeing, you know, when the fines came out, they were coming across my LinkedIn feed or they were making news and articles. So, that's why I honed in on these four. Um, and like I said, they're from various companies, traditional financial firms, all the way to our new flashy crypto firms. Okay, very good. Now, it's worth saying, and we discussed this as well offline, that we're not trying to pick on these companies and, and have a go at them. What we actually think is that by looking at these, there are things that our audience of practitioners can really learn from at uh, not only in terms of the headlines, but actually the nuance that's underneath them. And that's what you've researched in terms of lessons learned and things you can do to try and avoid similar for our audience's companies. So yeah, really looking forward to getting into this. Yeah, I am too. I think one of the big things that you shared is that there's actually some common themes that came across, not just these four enforcement actions, but actually that uh, were particularly across these four as well as others you've looked at. Could you maybe just talk through some of that and what those themes were? Yeah. So I kind of bucket them into like five different categories. So one of the very first categories was unable to keep up with the growth of the business. Um, so that's category one. Number two was staffing, staffing and training issues. The other one was stars filings and backlogs. And when I say backlogs, I don't mean backlogs of stars, but backlogs in performing enhanced due diligence or additional due diligence or re-reviewing because something has triggered um, of a due diligence file within those firms and also screening issues. 
Um, that was, you know, the fourth category. And then the fifth category was just a very general program failures. Um, you see a lot of them all commented about the policies and procedures um, on these firms. So that's kind of bucketed in that fifth and final category. Okay, cool. Well, let's break down each in, in some mm-hmm. detail and, and see, where, see where the conversation goes. So if we start at the start, you talked the first theme of keeping up with growth. So as businesses are getting bigger and bigger and doing it faster and faster in less and less time, I think there's always that stat around it takes a relatively short amount of time now to get onto sort of the stock exchange or Fortune 500 or whatever compared to what it used to be. But what, what do you mean sort of specifically when you say keeping up with growth leading to sort of compliance failures or, or in this case, enforcement actions? Yes. Yeah, so their business was growing in, um, for three of these fours very significantly and they didn't keep up. So they would go from, let's say, 100 clients and then I'll, within a year, they've up to 1,000 clients. So their compliance program could not match the volume of growth of their business, their transactions, or even different products and services that they were offering. So their compliance program was built for where they were at that moment in time, not necessarily for where they were going to be in five or 10 years. And they, unfortunately, in five or 10 years, they suffered the um, effects of not thinking long-term strategy with the compliance programming. And I think in many of these cases, well, it wasn't just sort of from hundreds to thousands, was it? It was hundreds of thousands, millions of customers. Yes. And yeah. And in one case, this company grew and there was still two people manually reviewing their transactions. You know, that's great when you're a small company, but then when you're having thousands of transactions go through um, your shop in a day, Two people cannot manually review those and make sure that they're not subject to screening. There's no, you know, fraud. And those two people, that wasn't their main job. So like I said, they couldn't scale their compliance program with their growth of their business. And unfortunately, it was to their detriment. Um, And I also want to point out, um, it's not like this was an overnight issue Usually by the time you're fined this big or these big fines, the regulators have given you multiple chances and multiple opportunities to fix your program. And in these instances, after several years, they still couldn't quite get it right. And and other than the staff, which I think we're going to come on to in a moment, how how does not not keeping up with growth manifest? Is it not the right systems? Is it, or does it start a policy issue or is it culture sort of, yeah, how, how does how do you, companies get left behind in this space? I think it's in um, kind of all three. So in one instance, I really think it was a cultural issue. You know, you're going from being a small institution, a small company where you know most of your clients, right? You know the type of clients you're servicing. And then all of a sudden you've become global and, you know, your culture doesn't change as fast as your business um, because it's very entrenched. Or like I said, you're not thinking that you're going to grow that quickly. You think you'll have time to pick a different compliance program, a different data provider, different technology provider to help you with your compliance program. And you just don't, Um, you know, you can't turn the Titanic um, on a dime. And I think that's what happened in some of these cases with these clients, with not clients, with these companies. Okay. In terms of, the why is it 
naivety or is it sort of a an active choice to you know know grow for all costs or or something else like I, i'm always fascinated by you know, once we've realized what has happened or what hasn't happened in this case like why why was that behavior what it was I do not want to speculate at all when it comes to these companies. I have my own personal theories um, being in the business is that one, in some cases, it's culture, right? You start off as a small company, a small institution, you know, everyone who banks or, you know, your type of clients. And as that changes, you don't change that culture um, with it, or it takes longer to change the culture to go to a more robust compliance program. So that's, I think one reason, I think the other reason is the siloed nature of compliance is that compliance sometimes sits um, very on a very different side of the house mm. than the revenue growth side of the business. And sometimes I think asking, can our compliance teams keep up? Do we have the right compliance infrastructure in place is kind of an afterthought. And it's sometimes thought, well, we'll figure it out as we go. Yeah. And it's a, very hard to figure that part out. Um, as you grow and as you grow quickly and rapidly, um, because there's probably other issues going on um, with your business, trying to keep up with that growth besides just compliance. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, I, I'd offer the four and I'd love your reaction is that that's yeah. why we need compliance, KYC, AML. We need the leaders of, of the various parts of this sort of with that seat at the table. They need to be in the exec management. Uh, they should be on the executive management team. They should be in the board meetings or represented in some way so that it is not sure. Well, I'd like to see it start with compliance in financial services in particular, mm -hmm. but in general, they sh it should be integrated at the very least to the decision making. Yeah. And I would even go a step further. Yes, we need to have the KYC, AML, compliance professionals at a seat at the executive table when these decisions are made. But I also go a step further you need to have your frontline operations managers there as well, because okay. they're going to know quickly, can we do this? Can we scale to accommodate this? They're probably going to know a lot more um, because of the day-to-day -day that they do than maybe someone, you know, thinking more policy than operationally as sure. well. well. I suppose that brings us nicely onto the second theme that you mentioned in terms of staffing. So mm -hmm. is it always a case of, having the, the top end compliance professional, as you say, policy, advisory, understand the risk controls, or is it more around that that front line who might not be necessarily specialists, but um, you know, maybe a more operational, it's more that onboarding analyst or onboarding staff. Is where where do you think the the shortfalls were in, in these particular enforcement actions? Well, one, this kind of goes back to the growth of business. A couple of them they failed to hire compliance people as quickly as they were hiring in other parts of the business as they grew. So they were understaffed. When you have someone who's understaffed and uh, maybe a clunky process, right, you're going to fall behind. So I think that's one of the first things that I saw across, you know, multiple of these companies was the understaffing. And then what they did have, they didn't properly train um, their employees as a whole to understand risks and pitfalls and those type of um, events um, that make up a due diligence file. You know, you mentioned onboarding. KYC AML is an ongoing evaluation of the clients, not just at onboarding. Yeah. Um, so the frontline, your sales professionals, they need to understand too when things change with their client and maybe changing the risk of the client and they need to communicate that properly. 
And then there was also a really interesting thing in some of these. It wasn't just the staff, but they also said in a couple of the instances that they failed to properly review contractors. So in this case, in some of these cases, these companies had hired third parties and contractors to come in and help them, but then they didn't provide enough oversight and governance on their contractors that they brought in. Um, in one instance, they even found that they had to re-review like 80% of some of the contractors' work wow. because they weren't sure if it was done properly. So it was a myriad of things in the staffing, but I think it goes a little bit back to your staff wasn't trained and didn't grow with the size of your business. It's a sort of a maturity issue. So maturity we're, issue we're, too, yeah. Growing, yeah. If you like, growing physically, but not mentally, probably me guilty of that as a sportsman teenager um but the yeah the growth of the business in size and ambition but perhaps not with this part keeping up mm-hmm. i think it's yeah it goes back to that prioritization right in the culture like if you're thinking about that all the time and trying to stay a couple of steps mm-hmm. ahead which ideally you would right with your compliance stuff is that you're always sort of you want to build the bridge before you start crossing it as opposed to sort of having to wait for it to uh to come in behind you you can't hire 10 sales guys and not hire at least one compliance officer, right? Because mm. those sales guys are going to bring you in business. So I think that or do something significantly transformational yeah. to make your current compliance program so, a lot so, more efficient. Yeah, a big digitization um, in that program. or yeah. something. Yeah, There's a disconnect between the sales growth and the compliance growth. I, I was going to ask, is there a is there a optimum that you've ever heard in the industry sort of ratio or is everyone still sort of just trying to figure it out? Well, I don't think there's the trying to figure out. I can't speak for that, but I think it really depends on how your program set up. The tools and technology that you have is going to depend on your staff level and, and also your clients and the products and services you sell. So there's no one size fits okay. all. Um, you just have to understand your risk appetite as a company and are you evaluating on all of those risks appropriately um, with the tools and the staff you have in place? If not, one of those needs to change. More staff or different, better tools? Yeah. So from first principle, then, if you are growing, then so should your budget for this stuff, whether you spend that on people or tech or both or Correct. something else, yeah. it leave to the individual firm to make the appropriate choice. But there should be a some sort of parallel trend in terms of your correct your spend in this area um oh yeah obviously the main thing that comes out of compliance programs or not the main thing but sort of the the outcome i guess is like their job is not to be law enforcement their job is not to actually go and see people but it is to file these uh sars or suspicious activity reports for anyone that's not familiar mm-hmm. with that acronym and you mentioned that is sort of the one of the themes, again, that people were maybe not getting this right and they were also creating backlogs in other parts of the overall process. Mm-hmm. Could you talk in a little bit more detail from the enforcement actions you read of what was going on there? Yeah, so SAR as a specialist activity is, you know, it's kind of a broad term. If you think that something doesn't pass the smell test is the best way to put it. You need to notify the government that something doesn't pass the smell test. You know, in one case, a client had a personal checking account and they were depositing thousands of third-party checks, checks made out to somebody else that were very small accounts. They were aware of this, but they never filed the suspicious activity report. Um, And they had, in their investigation unit, they had thousands of these waiting 
for further investigation. A lot of times these suspicious activities, you know, one part of the business is flagging it to an investigation unit or a fraud unit for further investigation. And sometimes they're completely benign, but they still require a little bit of investigation. Mm. You know, think about me last year, you know, if you looked in June of last year, I had, you know, large deposits hitting my account. Why? I had just given birth. I was getting gifts from family. You know, that was unusual activity to my account, but it was completely benign. But somebody probably still had to research that and say, okay, this isn't anything to be concerned about. We don't need to file this with the government, but it still needed some investigation probably. And there was thousands of those sitting with some of these companies for further investigation. Yeah, I suppose either somebody asking the question or for the, I mean, I'm fascinated with the whole open banking angle, right? Someone could see that yourself and mm-hmm. and you know your immediate family probably had been buying baby products in preparation yeah. and then it would make sense, right? And maybe the computer can know, oh, there'd probably be an input here because commonly when somebody is buying these products, they'll get deposits from multiple people who are well-wishers or, or extended family yeah. or something like that. Um, so ah. multiple ways you could handle it. it in terms okay. of backlogs in general, like I've heard about these for years and years and years. Like, has any real progress been made as an industry to really like crack down on these, or is it always just project based? And it's you know you get to a point where the pile just gets so big you have to do something. Or has there been a meaningful shift in trying to not have these as often? Definitely a meaningful shift, right? Nobody wants backlogs of any time. But there's going to be certain events, either regulatory or even economically, that could potentially create an influx of backlogs. And if you don't have the right staff, the right process, the right technology, you're going to get underwater pretty quickly. Um, so that's probably what happened in this case sure. is, you know, something happened. And like I said, didn't have the staff, the technology. And once you're underwater, it's really hard to dig back out of these backlogs. What should happen at that stage? Should there be a sort of a stop sign held up to business say, look, we can't do any more until we, we get out from this? Or because otherwise, In one company's case, yes. What they did is they actually stopped accepting new clients for a few months to help themselves get out okay. of this um, and to put in some refines. Once again, it's going to depend on how big the backlogs is and the purpose and the why, why they would do that. And it's also... It's really tough to stop business for a few months, sure. but you know if that's what needed to happen in one of these companies' case to really get a handle of things, they did. They they made that business decision. Did that get them sort of some uh, credit with the um, enforcement agencies and and the the regulators? Did that you know bring a degree of leniency for doing that? Well, according to this company, fine, uh, not necessarily, but I do think it did give them some goodwill towards the regulator, you know, when you are making meaningful strides, they're going to be, you know, a little bit more lenient on you. But then once again, if you keep having failures or program failures over and over and over again, they get to a point where they say enough is enough. Um, But I think it did buy some goodwill probably in this case. Sort of like once is a mistake, twice is a concern and three times a trend um, or something something like that. One of the types of backlogs that we we hear about right often when we're we're going to clients and they say hey i need help with x often that x can be a screening backlog and remediation Mm -hmm. you mentioned screening was something where there were failures across a number of these actions 
screening can mean many things though. So what types of screening were specifically being being called out here? Yeah. And so two of the cases, they screened at onboarding, but then they didn't screen again. So they weren't screening IP addresses um, for ge- geographical um, sanctions. So, right. okay. you know, can't do business in certain countries and they were getting requests for business from these countries. One was, you know, it looked like it was a blip in the radar. They missed one country, right, on their IP address. And some, it was all of them. So that was one of the things I was seeing screening. And then the other one is they kind of had like a flawed system, a flawed policy. This goes back into one of the other categories. They didn't screen for certain attributes unless the client was high risk. Well, it's like a chicken or an egg thing. How do you know if the client is high risk unless you screen for this? So (laughs) it it was a chicken or an egg thing, I think. Um, But yeah, so those were some of the screening issues I was seeing. Um, Like I said, the one of most of them were screening at onboarding and then not doing subsequent. So it's it's kind of not screening enough types of risk not screening mm-hmm. consistently and you know we we advocate perpetual right like constant right. monitoring but at the very least there should be some sort of periodic process and then the ip address screening specifically that's something that's maybe a a newer thing right like 20 years ago i, I doubt people were screening ip addresses but now it's an expectation if you you've got an effective sanctions program you need to be doing that and need to be doing that you know consistently oh completely agreed i even you know like said this ran the gamut of very crypto companies to traditional finance. I think no matter where you are on that spectrum, you need to be screening for the IP addresses. I mean, we are a very global society with remote working and everything that came. Mm. You never know where someone's actually going to be located. And I think you need to have that information um, to appropriately assign the risk, um, not even just sanctioned risk, but other kinds of risk as well. And that will take me down another rabbit hole that we could talk about those other risks with geographical <laughs> yeah, <laughs> IP addresses in, in, on in another that, date. <laughs> that's, that's the, well, the last theme that you mentioned was sort of the collection of miscellaneous, you know, the other failures. I don't know if you wanted to do a quick minute or two, just recap of some of the more interesting ones that you think you know audience members might uh, value just being made aware of. Yeah, so one like it was, once again, the regulars, like I said, failed to have adequate policies, procedures, and internal controls. You know, one even regulator called their current system rudimentary at most. Um, so I saw that a lot um, throughout some of these companies. It's just, once again, we talked about the infrastructure of the data, the technology, and the people. But if you don't have an overarching good policy in place, you're never going to have those other components in place too to handle everything else you need. Um, and the other thing to point out is, you know, you mentioned the size of the fines from several hundred thousand dollars to millions of dollars. The ones who were fined the heaviest did not disclose their failures to FinCEN. They did not self-report these. Okay. The regulators discovered these and said, you need to correct this. And then when they didn't correct them in a timely manner is when the fines came. So that was another thing. But that goes back to internal controls. If you don't have right policies, procedures, and internal controls, you're going to not know that you're failing enough to even let Vincent know, hey, we've discovered this. 
So it kind of goes hand in hand. <laughs> I imagine all of it links back to staffing, right? If you don't have the right experience and talent at the, right. at the senior level, like you're not then going to have the right policy. You're not going to have someone advocating and making sure you've got the resources you need for the front line. You're not going to have someone who understands the different types of screen and the nuances. You're not going to have someone on top of the backlogs who's seen it before and knows how to get out of it or how to handle the business side out of it. And you also might have someone who thinks, oh, it will be okay, rather than, no, look, we've made a mistake. But if yeah. we go and self-disclose, there will be a degree of leniency. I, I think the, the fines range from a few hundred thousand dollars, which is still a lot of money to a lot of people, but in the context of fines, it's pretty small, uh, mm-hmm. to I think 140 million was the, the largest of the four that you, you uh, have been doing some work on. Yeah. But those fines are a little misleading, right? So okay. I want to talk about a little bit about the fines. So they make a big splash, right? Mm. That $140 million. Yes, that's the fine. But yes, they pay a portion of that to the regulator, whoever it is. But they're also then required to invest a certain amount of money into their program. Okay. In one instance, the fine was, let's say it was $100 million. They paid a $50 million fine. And then they had to put $50 million into bettering their program. They're mandated now Mm. to put that money into components, either staffing, data, tech, whatever they need to make their program better. Um, But then I wanted to talk about that experience. The regulators do point out, you know, some mitigating factors of why they weren't fined more or why they waited so fine. And one of the lesser fines, one of the fines that says, we are now happy because they have hired a new AML officer with significant experience. Um, so that puts a little bit of less pressure, I would say, on the company when they go in and make the right hires yeah. as well, well. Like many things, it's normally better to be proactive than reactive, but, but you know, better late than never. Um, Correct. I wanted to move on to a couple of other more philosophical questions, I guess. So sure. it, being fined, right? Like there's been this narrative ever since I got involved in the industry that some people will say, oh, no, that's you know, part of the value we add you know, as compliance professionals is we're stopping our companies from being fine. Others will cynically say, hey, you know what? It's actually treated as the cost of doing business. And I wonder, has that debate moved on at all in your eyes? As you've looked into these, do you think fines are being treated that way? Or, or have we moved to a sort of more aspirational place where we're, we're trying to minimize these things because we don't want our companies to be fine? But Ultimately, like we're actually trying to do the right thing, and this is sort of more of a symptom rather than the, well, not symptom, but is a byproduct rather than the goal that we're we're working towards. That's a very tough question. Um, I would say both, right? I've seen both. What companies don't want is a consent order or a cease and desist order. So I don't think sometimes they care about the fine, but they do care about the other components that typically go on with these large fines. Um, The consent order, you're going to have more involvement by regulators. Sometimes you can't grow your business. You can't take certain deposits. You know, you can't get into certain industries. So a consent order is someone basically closely monitoring you, sort of looking over your shoulder, but you carry on doing business. And the cease and desist is we're literally going to turn off part of your business, if not the whole business. Okay, cool. Yep. Sorry to interrupt your flow. Okay. I just thought it's always I'm worth sure there's more in. nuances to a consent order, yeah. but I'm trying to keep it very high level. Yeah. Same thing with cease and desist, just very basic. Yeah, um, well, just, that, that one makes, you know, nobody wants that. <laughs> I can see why they'd be more concerned about a cease and desist than a, uh, than a fine per se. 
with the consent order, is that ever treated as a, maybe a, a positive? It's a catalyst for change and it maybe gives more weight to compliance for a period of time? Oh my goodness, yes. I've seen companies really transform when they're under a consent order. Um, one, puts a spotlight on the need. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, hiring 10 sales guys and maybe you get one compliance person, but it, it does put a spotlight on the need to invest in compliance. Not so you get future fines, but also to protect your company from risk and fraudulent mm. activity going through um, your company. So I've seen some really good things come from companies under consent orders. And I've seen companies go from, you know, being fined by the regulator, being called out for their, you know, policies and procedures to being on the forefront now of AML and compliance, you know, leading. Um, because they did take the time to stop, pause, and redesign or transform their program into something long-term mm. that can work um, either as the business keeps growing or if the business pivots in different areas. So I've seen, you know, I've seen some good things come out of consent orders. Okay. But two more questions, one for myself and then one from a, an audience member. So um, this is the other philosophical one that I have, but are fines inevitable or enforcement actions inevitable when the regulations are principle-based? I don't think they're inevitable. I, because once again, you're typically fine when you fail multiple times in a row, right? Okay. Like they've discovered an issue and you don't correct it. Um, but I will say that everyone needs to be looking at these enforcement actions from the different regulators because you learn a lot on what they're looking for and ways you need to be improving your own programs by reading it. Um, we call it, you know, regulation by enforcement. Um, so yeah, that would be my roundabout answer to that question. Okay. I it's, hope it answered it enough for you, Alex. Well, it's, it's more of a pondering, right? Like sometimes I yeah. hear people say that, oh, we, we want more precise regulation. We want to know that if we do X, then we are good and safe. And I've normally said, no, actually like principle base is better because it means that you, d you have less loopholes, you have less people being sort of, well, technically I did the right thing, but, and I think there's always that question. I was actually discussing it with uh, somebody in the industry this morning, not for a podcast around sort of the uh, <laughs> being compliant with the regulation to be compliant with the regulation versus being, you know, in the spirit of the regulation in the spirit of the law. And there's, you've, you've ultimately the goal is to be both. Um, yeah. But when it, you know, you've got principles rather than, an exact checklist, then people misinterpreting it can obviously lead then to failures, which to your point though, it normally is multiple failures. So I think it's an interesting question. It's not necessarily one that where there is a right answer, but it's, I thought it was worth sort of getting your view and perhaps people that are listening to this may have their own. I um, would love to hear it. So if anyone does have an interesting take on that, feel free to ping me. I'd, I'd love to sort of get into a few discussions on it. And is, are there things that practitioners, vendors, regulators, you know, other parts of the ecosystem could do to, you know, just make it better. Um, because as you say that sometimes the fines are simply a catalyst to make positive change. But also I think our, our regulators have given us, you know, they want things on a risk-based approach. Mm. And that gives you, that's going to mean something very different for each company. And so I think that's part of the reason why they can't be so prescriptive. Because you may have one client who says, I'm not going to deal in this business at all because I think it's too risky. And then you have one who says, we'll deal with it, but we need X, Y, and Z. So 
I don't think you can be so prescriptive because you have to remember each of these different companies has different goals, different clients, and different mm. risk appetites. Yeah. Interesting. I said one more question. This is sort of an audience ask, as we call it, where mm. someone got in touch and they knew I was going to have this conversation with you. Mm -hmm. So what I think their question is driving at is normally there is something that happens that is you know, mm. against the regulation or the regulator fines or is disclosed. And then there's a, a lag, right? There is a period of time before any fine is, it makes the news and that we're all aware of it and gets written up and then people can read about like you have done uh, and go into the detail of what happened and what can we learn. So at the moment, the fines are increasing, but that's all from actions that happened a few years ago. The question from this audience member is that, do we expect that to continue? Do we think there's going to continue to be a growth in fines or because there's more technology, there's more attention on compliance, there's hopefully been investment in the programs. Do we think that over the next two or three years with the lag, actually the fines will come down both in incidents and amounts because hopefully the industry's moved on to a point where it's performing better? I don't know the answer to that, but I do think we have more companies now in financial services with mm. the rise of fintechs and cryptos. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see in the next two years if more of these kind of companies are getting fines, um, as well as the typical, you know, you, we usually have one big financial institution a year. Um, so yeah. that would that would be my only reason why I would say yes, I would. An increase because yeah. of the extra fintechs and cryptos and the attention that's on them right now. Yeah, I see us maybe saying yes, but that's going to be tough because I agree with you. I think the more data, the more technology, you know, it's helping in a lot of these mm. um, meet their regulatory requirements. Yeah, but simply the the volume. If there's more, there's more regulated more players companies. in the space. I think there's more players in the space now. And there was a few years ago. So maybe the metric wouldn't be how many fines; it'd be the average number per <laughs> per regulated entity or something, and we'd have to look at it that yeah. way. That, that's, that's yeah, a, I, I yeah. think that's the right way of probably looking at it. And then, like I said, and the fines are meant to be splashy, but they're not. If you actually read the details, they're not as splashy as they seem, mm. um, because part of the fine is investing back into their program. A lot yeah. of cases. Yeah. Well, as, as I've mentioned. Um, you know, you've been doing a lot of reading into this and looking for these themes, but are there any sort of recommended resources you would point someone to who wants to sort of go read source material themselves or that wants to keep up with fines and, and pick out lessons themselves? Any, anything that you use regularly that you'd recommend to other practitioners? Yeah, I mean, I'm always looking at the enforcement actions by FinCEN. That's one of them. And the New York State and OFAC, you know, I'm always looking at their enforcement actions. I actually think I have a daily feed from them if there's anything new. Um, and then also, you know, we mentioned some other things um, today. We talked about IP addresses. I believe um, we recently published a blog on the IP addresses. And actually, we have also published, Moody's has published a blog as well about uh, one of these um, companies who's been fined um, on our blog. Okay, cool. Well, we'll, we'll get the links yep. for those, put them in the show notes. So if people are interested, please go take, uh, have a click through and, and, and learn a little bit more. Um, Jill, I'll just say thanks again for your time. I appreciate Thank there's you. been a lot going on. As you mentioned, there's a, a newborn, <laughs> or a relative <laughs> newborn that also requires your attention when you're not reading about fines and telling me about them. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I'll, I'll look forward to speaking again in the future. Thanks, Alex. Talk to you soon. 
I'm really grateful to Jill for doing the research on this and making herself available for the discussion. As we discussed, we're not here to kick companies who have fallen foul of the regulators and enforcement actions, but we do want to ensure that we as an industry are taking the lessons from these forward. I think it's clear that companies can't think of KYC and compliance after they have thought of their product and business plans. They actually need to have it built in from the very start. They also need to ensure that they have the relevant expertise and for lack of a better term, people with clout to ensure strong representation of compliance at the management and board level. Thank you for listening and a big thank you again to Jill for her work on this and to producers Caroline Waters, Shem Pennant and Mark Rundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.